the Eucharist is the centre of Christian life, just as Christ is a central figure in the Christian religion. As well as being a sacrifice, it is the greatest of all the sacraments, as it contains Christ himself. While in the other sacraments, Christ acts and applies the merits of his passion for a particular purpose. St. Thomas Aquinas points out that all the other sacraments are ordained to this sacrament as to their end. It not only symbolizes or represents the passion and death of Christ, but contains it. Uh, the Mass is the sacrifice of the cross, a, a fact which St. Thomas illustrates by quoting St. Ambrose. St. Ambrose said, In Christ was offered up a sacrifice capable of giving eternal salvation. What then do we do? Do we not offer it up every day in memory of his death? The passion of the Lord is the sacrifice we offer, wrote St. Cyprian. It would be impossible to write anything which could exaggerate the importance of the Eucharist. Now, there have been three great Eucharistic controversies in the history of the Church. Actually, there have been four, because there was another one after Vatican II. Uh, you might have heard of uh, transsignification or transfinalization, uh, which I'm not going to talk about today. But if you read books on the history of the Eucharist, they always say there are three great controversies. Uh, the first took place in the 9th century, and it involved a very famous dispute between two monks from the famous Abbey of Corby in Picardy, in the Diocese of Amiens. The first of these monks was St. Pascasius Redbertus, who was born at Soissons in 786. We know very little about his parents, about his background, except for some reason his parents exposed him and left him to die when he was a baby. But... Uh, somebody found him and gave him to some Benedictine nuns who, uh, at Soissons who brought him up. He entered the Benedictine monastery at Corby and he was for many years the instructor of the young monks. He was elected abbot in 843 and St. he became a saint later too. And St. Pascasius, he wrote many important books but he's most famous of all for writing the first doctrinal treatise on the Eucharist it was called De Corpore et Sanguine Domini. And he wrote it in 831, and he revised it in 834. And St. Pascasius upheld the real presence of our Lord in the Eucharist, and he insisted that what we receive in Holy Communion is the flesh born of Mary, which had suffered on the cross and had risen again. This treatise was an implicit affirmation of what would be defined later as, as the doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, a monk from the same monastery, called Rabanus Morus, he attacked this work of his abbot, and he said that Pascasius had identified the Eucharistic presence of Christ so closely with his natural historical body that there appeared to be no difference between the two modes of existence. Rotramnus considered it necessary to stress the fact that the body of Christ in the sacred host, notwithstanding its essential identity <coughs> with the historical body, is present by a spiritual mode of existence, and consequently as an invisible substance, and that our eyes cannot immediately perceive the body of Christ in the form of bread. Now, Pascasius had never said that we could uh, uh, perceive the, the body of Christ itself in the form of bread. Uh, and he defended uh, his, his, his treatise with very great skill against his critics. And St. Pascasius was eventually vindicated by a great scholar called Gerbert, 
who eventually became Pope Sylvester II in 999. Uh, this Pope, Pope Sylvester II, he, he insisted that the doctrine of St. Pascasius was correct in every detail. And this, what might seem to us to be a, a, you know, a very obscure controversy, it was very, of very, very great importance in the history of Eucharistic theology. Uh, as, you, as you all know, that the, the very clear way that doctrines such as that of the uh, Trinity, the divinity of our Lord, and the Eucharist are expressed today, they were, that was the result of getting ever more precise formulations and definitions as the centuries passed. Uh, Dr. Maris said to you yesterday, the church would sometimes fight 200 years over a single word. And this is what's happening here. So the, we've had a difference of opinion now between two monks on the nature of the Eucharist. Uh, while St. Pascasius most certainly taught nothing erroneous, everything he taught was true, uh, his, his, his opponent, Retramnus, did have a certain point in that he, he, he accused St. Pascasius of teaching novel and, and, and unheard of doctrine. But I think it can be said that St. Pascasius didn't make the distinction between the Eucharistic presence of, of our Lord and his historical body with, with, with sufficient clarity. But, but it can also be argued that Retramnus laid insufficient stress on the unity between the two modes of, of presence. So perhaps neither of them actually got it, exa- got it exactly right. And, but the, the one who was most wrong was Retramnus, because he virtually said that the, the well, he said it quite explicitly, that, the body, that what you see when you adore the host isn't actually the body that was born of the Virgin. So his views were really condemned, implicitly condemned, by later definitions of the church. But uh, uh, this time, there was no actual intervention by authority. As, as Dr. Maragain said yesterday, in the Middle Ages, this was the early Middle Ages, scholars had great freedom to debate. And uh, authority might, literally might not intervene for a couple hundred years, which was what happened in this case. So then, Retramnus claimed that in the Holy Eucharist, there is no conversion of the bread that the body of Christ is nevertheless present, but in a spiritual way, and that it is not therefore the same as that born of Mary and crucified. Uh, <coughs> and as I've just said to you, there was the authorities in the church didn't intervene. Uh, the, their first intervention took place at the end of the 11th century, and that was to correct the errors of Berengarius of Tours. Uh, Berengarius, who, who lived from 1010 to 1088, he was a scholastic theologian, and his teaching definitely called into question the substantial presence of Christ in the Eucharist. He was required by St. Gregory VII to take an oath affirming the orthodox belief, and this oath has been looked upon ever since as the touchstone of uh, orthodox belief in the Eucharist. All Catholics really are in the debt of Berengarius because it was his heresy that... Uh, resulted in the dogma of transubstantiation being defined with such clarity. Berengarius was born on a tiny island called St. Cosme near Tours in 999. He completed his elementary studies in Tours and then uh, he moved to Chartres, the, the very, very famous school that Dr. Barrow was talking about uh, this morning. He moved to the school at Chartres to study arts and theology under uh, the very, very famous St. Fulbert. 
Odo, the fa- him, another famous bishop of Chartres, he'd appointed Fulbert to be uh, <coughs> chancellor of his cathedral school. By his genius in drawing men to himself, Fulbert made the school of Chartres the most famous in Europe, and in uh, 1007 he actually became the bishop of Chartres himself. Well, at this school, Berengeria soon became celebrated uh, for his intelligence and for his inquiring mind. But uh, Fulbert, he feared sometimes that the mind of this exceptional pupil was perhaps too inquiring, and some of his opinions were a little too singular. Berengeria stayed at the school of Chartres until the death of Fulbert, which took place in 1029, and then he returned to his hometown of Tours, and uh, he took charge, as, as Scholasticus, of the school of St. Martin of Tours. And his, his reputation spread throughout France, just as that of uh, Fulbert had done, and many of the very, very best young men uh, from France came to Tours to study under Berengarius, and in 1039 he was chosen to be Archdeacon of Angers by Huber, who was bishop of that city. He accepted the office, and, and no doubt due to the income that came from it, but he remained in Tours and continued to direct his school. The teaching of Berengarius on the Holy Eucharist began to attract attention in about the year 1047. He based his teaching on, uh, <coughs> on Retramnus, so who I've mentioned to you. He was the monk who uh, attacked uh, St. Pascasius. So he, he, he based, Berengarius based himself upon him, but even more so upon a virtually unknown uh, Irish monk, whose name was John Scotus uh, Eregena. Very little is known about him. He, he lived from 810 to 877. Uh, and Eregena actually means a native of Ireland. You know, Eregabraw, Ireland forever. So that's what his name meant. He was John Scotus, a native of Ireland. And he intervened in the debate uh, between St. Pascasius and Retramnus, and he took the side of Retramnus. Berengarius based his theories largely upon a treatise called De Corpore et Sanguine Domini, which was allegedly written by Eregain in about 860. And this treatise has since been lost, and we've got no authentic information uh, about it at all. It's possible even that uh, this treatise of, of Eregain was actually the same one written by St. Pascasius with the same name. Uh, and... Uh, Erigain had written a completely different treatise, but, but these things don't uh, really matter. Be that as it may, when Berengarius was actually accused of heresy, he attempted to justify himself by appealing to the teaching of Erigena. So that in- indicates that this teaching was very widely known. So he, he really said, well, you, you can't get me for anything, I'm just repeating what Erigena said. We don't have any really detailed teaching uh, sorry we don't really have any detailed record of what Berenger has actually taught much of it has been lost all we have are a few fragments uh, he, he wrote a treatise in, uh, entitled De Sacra and one little extract from it will give you an idea how wrong he was he, it, <coughs> this is what Berenger actually wrote if it is said that the bread which is placed upon the altar after the consecration is the body of Christ this is just as much a figure of speech as if it is said, Christ is a lion, a lamb, or the main cornerstone. So he said, saying that uh, 
the Eucharist was the body of Christ. That was just a figure of speech. Uh, Berengarius came under fire from a very, very famous Italian scholar uh, whose name was Lanfranc. He was the abbot of the Bishop of Lebec in France. And later he became the Archbishop of Canterbury. In 1070, Lanfranc wrote a refutation of Berengarius, and he called it yet again, De Corpore et Sanguine Domini. That's three times this title has come up. This was based mainly on the teaching of the fathers, particularly that of St. Ambrose, but also on the treatise of St. Pascasius, uh, of the same name. Uh, and so really it was the battle between uh, these two monks being fought all over again. But this time authority did intervene and Berengarius was condemned for heresy, he was imprisoned then he was released then he retracted his heretical teaching then he retracted his retraction there it all gets a bit complicated and he was opposed vigorously, this is an interesting little point I discovered, he was opposed vigorously by the Count of Anjou uh, whose name is Geoffrey the Bearded and it must have been very disconcerting to be opposed by Geoffrey the Bearded, I, I, I would imagine. Uh, now, Berengarius had maintained that the bread and wine, and this is the important part, the bread and wine without any change in their nature, become by consecration the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ, a memorial of the body crucified, and of the blood shed on the cross. It is not, however, he taught, the body of Christ that is in heaven, because Berengarius said, how could the body of Christ, which is now in heaven, and necessarily limited by space, be in another place and beyond several altars and in numerous hosts all at the same time? Which is exactly what Wycliffe was to teach later. Berengarius appealed to Pope Alexander II, and he was told by the Pope to retract his errors. He refused to do so in a very contemptuous manner, and he wrote a treatise entitled De Sacrocene Adversus Lanfrancum, which is the, the, the Lord's Supper against Lanfranc. Now, in 1073, uh, the great man Hildebrand was elected Pope, and of course, you all know, he became St. Gregory VII, and he ordered Berengarius to come to Rome. They held a council in St. John Lateran, and Berengarius signed a profession of faith, affirming the conversion of the bread and wine into the body of Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. In the following year, in another council held at St. John Lateran, he signed an even more explicit formula. St. Gregory recommended him to the bishops of Tours and Angers, and forbade that any penalty should be inflicted upon him. So he was very lucky, he got away without uh, any punishment at all. Uh, once, however, he returned to Tours, he attacked the formula that he'd signed. Uh, but then he retracted his attack, and he did actually die in union with the church in 1080 on the little island of St. Cosme where he'd been born. As I said, the most important thing about Berengarius is his oath. Because that, that, that's been incorporated into Catholic teaching. Uh, of, it's the teaching of Aquinas is replete with it, and the teaching of the Council of Trent. So, if you'll bear with me, I'll actually read you the text of his famous oath, which is, is very interesting, very important. I, Berengarius, believe interiorly and profess publicly that the bread and wine which are placed on the altar through the mystery of the sacred prayer and the words of our Redeemer are substantially changed into the true, proper, and life-giving flesh and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, after the consecration, it is the true body of Christ which was born of the Virgin and which hung on the cross as an offering for the salvation of the world. 
and which sits at the right hand of the Father. And it is the true blood of Christ which poured forth from his side. And Christ is present not merely by virtue of the sign and power of the sacrament, but in his proper nature and true substance, as is set down in this summary. And as I read it and you understand it, this I believe, and I will not teach any more against this faith, so help me God in this holy gospel of God. So that was the second Eucharistic controversy. The third and greatest one, of course, was that of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Uh, but as I've mentioned, uh, the, the heresies of Protestantism were preceded by that of John Wycliffe in 14th century England. He, he can be described as a proto-Protestant, and his teaching not only resembled, but actually influenced the 16th century reformers. But Wycliffe, in his turn, uh, was, was influenced greatly by the heresy of Berengarius. Uh, the, the, the errors of Wycliffe and the Protestant reformers, I'll discuss those in, in my next lecture. But uh, for the rest of this one, I, I want to concentrate on the teaching of the Church on the Holy Eucharist. Now, it's very, very important to realize, contrary to what uh, you know, a lot of Protestants say, that this... Our present doctrine of the real presence, the doctrine affirmed by Trent, uh, didn't suddenly come into being in the pontificate of Gregory VII. It wasn't an invention. All that Pope Gregory VII did was to affirm in explicit terms what, what, what Catholics had always believed in the East and in the West. And this is a belief that can be traced right back to the New Testament. And it was re uh, reaffirmed in more precise terms in every century that followed. Uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch, who, who lived from the year 35 to 107, he dealt fiercely with the heresy of docetism, which was an early form of Gnosticism. Uh, the word docetism comes from the Greek word meaning uh, to seem or to appear. The docetists claimed that the humanity and suffering of our Lord were apparent rather than real. And they denied that our Lord did actually have a human body. And therefore, as he had no body, his body couldn't be received in the Eucharist. And this is what St. Ignatius said about them. The crime of the schismatical docetists is this. They abstain from the Eucharist in prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the body of our Saviour Jesus Christ. He didn't mean, of course, that the docetists didn't pray or they didn't celebrate the Eucharist. But they wouldn't go to the Catholic Eucharist in, in which Christ was believed to be actually present. St. Gregory of Nyssa, who was born about 331, wrote... Rightly, therefore, I believe that even today the bread being sanctified by the word of God is converted into the body of the Logos God. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, who lived in the 4th century, 315 to 386, quoted the words of institution uh, from the New Testament and said, Since Christ himself said of the bread, this is my body, who will venture to waver? And since he himself assures us, this is my blood, who should ever doubt that it is his blood? At Cana in Galilee, he once converted water into wine, which is akin to blood. Is he undeserving of belief when he converts wine into blood? Therefore, let us receive it with full conviction as the body and blood of Christ. For under the appearance of bread, thou receivest the body, and under the appearance of wine, the blood. In order that through the reception of the body and blood of Christ, thou mayest become a one body and blood with him. In this way, too, we are made bearers of Christ, since his body and blood are received into our members. Hence, do not regard it as mere bread and wine, 
For, according to the Lord's assurance, it is the body and blood of Christ. Though the senses seem to tell thee otherwise, faith gives thee certainty. Do not judge by the taste, but obtain from faith the indubitable certitude that thou hast been vouchsafed the body and blood of Christ. You see, that's a very, very vivid affirmation of, of the real presence. In the 4th century, another great 4th century father, St. Ambrose of Milan, he, he, he could hardly have spoken more forcefully than this. This is what St. Ambrose wrote. The word of Christ, which could make from nothing what at first did not exist, <laughs> quite, quite interesting, following what Dr. Mara is telling us this morning, the word of Christ, which could make from nothing what at first did not exist, can it not change what existed already, bread, into what this bread was not. What we make present by this word is the body born of the virgin. Why do you set about seeking for natural laws when it is a matter of Christ's body, since this same body was born of a virgin? Jesus Christ himself calls out, This is my body. Before the blessing of the heavenly words, it is another kind of thing which we distinguish by name. But after the consecration, it is the body that is signified. He himself said it was his blood. Before the consecration, it had another name. After it, it is called blood. And you say, Amen, which means, it is true. What the mouth utters, let the spirit inwardly proclaim. Let the heart fill. St. John Chrysostom, who lived from 347 to 407, he was known as the doctor of the Eucharist. And... uh, he, he wrote of uh, the, the Eucharist in the most realistic terms, time and again. Here's one little ex- extract from St. John Chrysostom. That which is in the chalice is the same as that which flowed from the side of Christ. And of this we are made partakers, which is appropriate today, because today is the feast of the precious blood. What the Lord did not tolerate on the cross, that's the breaking of his limbs, he tolerates now in the sacrifice through love of thee. He permits himself to be broken into pieces so that we may all be filled to satiety. Satiety, sorry. The wise men adored this body when it lay in the manger. They prostrated themselves before it in fear and trembling. Now you behold the same body which the wise men adored in the manger, lying upon the altar. You also know its virtue and salutary effect. Already in the present life, this mystery changes the earth for you into heaven. The sublimest thing that is there, the body of the Lord, you can behold it here on earth. Yea, you not only behold it, but you touch it and eat it. Uh, you, you all have heard of the principle lex orandi, lex credendi, which means that the way that we pray, lex orandi, reflect, reflects what we believe, lex credendi. In other words, the church's liturgy is a sure guide to her belief. Uh, towards the end of the 4th century, uh, St. Ambrose uh, uh, of Milan once more, he, he wrote a collection of instructions for newly baptized Christians called De Sacramentis. And this treatise, De Sacramentis, quotes the central part of our present canon, the canon you hear in the Mass today, which is substantially identical with it, but somewhat shorter. Uh, from the Quamablationium uh, onwards, the whole, all the prayers of the canon are the same as today, and including all the specifically sacrificial prayers. And, and that was in existence before the end of the 4th century. 
the doctrines of sacrifice and the real presence are made very, very specific in, in the Roman canon. So this gives a liturgical testimony to the teaching of, of the church. And the principle lex serrani, lex credendi, that's also manifest in the change from communion in the hand to communion on the tongue. This was a natural development prompted by an intensification of devotion to the Blessed Sacrament. By the 13th century, it was considered unthinkable that any hands but those of a priest which had been consecrated for the purpose should ever touch the consecrated host. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas was obviously referring to a long-standing tradition when he wrote, The dispensing of Christ's body belongs to the priest for three reasons. First, because he consecrates in the person of Christ. But, as Christ consecrated his body at the supper, so also he gave it to others to be partaken of by them. Accordingly, as the consecration of Christ's body belongs to the priest, so likewise does the dispensing belong to him. Secondly, because the priest is the appointed intermediary between God and the people, hence, as it belongs to him to offer the people's gifts to God, so it belongs to him to deliver the consecrated gifts to the people. Thirdly, because out of reverence towards this this sacrament, nothing touches it but what is consecrated, and likewise the priest's hands for touching this sacrament. Hence, it is not lawful for anyone else to touch it except from necessity, for instance, if it were to fall upon the ground, or else in some other case of urgency. Evident continuity with the oath of Berengarius can be found in the following anathema of the Council of Trent, which was worded as a specific response to the teaching of the Protestant reformers. If anyone denies that the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist, but says that Christ is present in the sacrament only as a sign or figure, or by his power, let him be anathema. Now, some people will tell you today that, you know, this doctrine of the substantial presence, well, they say it isn't a doctrine, it's an explanation of a doctrine. But it isn't, it is actually a doctrine, a dogma that we have to believe. We have to believe in this doctrine of substantial change. It's trying to anathemize anyone who denies that our Lord is present substantially in, in the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, it's necessary also to have a, a very clear idea of the meaning of substance within the context of Catholic Eucharistic theology. And this is where things get somewhat complex. Because uh, if we're going to understand the incompatibility of Catholic and Protestant teaching, we, we have to ha- understand the meaning of su- substantial change. Now, I want to lay stress upon this word substantial, because the term substantial change or substantial presence, convey the Catholic teaching more precisely than the term real presence. We know, for example, the Lord is present wherever two or three are gathered together in his name. And we can't say that isn't a real presence, but it's definitely not a substantial presence. The word substance, or substantia in Latin, was taken over by scholastic theologians from the philosophy of Aristotle. Uh, It is sometimes argued that the term should no longer be used, since many of the scientific views held by Aristotle and, the, and by the scholastics have been proved to be untenable by modern scientists. 
But the sense in which the word substance is used in Eucharistic theology transcends any particular theory of science or philosophy, because the notion of substance is metaphysical and not physical. No physical or chemical analysis has any relevance here. It doesn't matter whether, whether probably as, say in the time of Aquinas, they thought that bread was just one substance, or today scientists would say it's a mixture of various substances, and each of these substances is composed of molecules and atoms, and these in their turn of particles whose number and order vary according to whether we're dealing with this or that kind of substance. None of this is relevant to, to the meaning of substance in, in Catholic Eucharistic theology. What substance refers to in this theology is the permanent underlying reality of anything that exists, which makes it what it is and not something else. We could, for example, talk of the substance of grass. It is what makes it grass, not a flower, not a tree, not an insect, and not a bird. Uh, the substance of grass, we could perhaps also refer to it as the grassness of grass. It's, it's, it's what makes it grass and nothing else. But when grass is eaten by uh, a cow, it, it's changed into milk. One could say, almost say that the grass has been transubstantiated into milk, because one substance has been changed into another substance. Now, the substance or underlying reality of anything can be contrasted with its uh, accidents or appearance, or figures. The accidents, they're what the senses perceive, such as colour, size or taste. The substance of an object, uh, an everyday object, it can remain unchanged while its appearances do change. For example, if you take water, water can be a liquid, a solid or a gas, depending uh, if it's in its natural state as a liquid, solid when frozen into ice, or a gas when heated into steam. But its substance or underlying reality remains the same all the time. If you, if you ask what you see before you in any of these three forms, except when it's steam, you can't actually see it. Uh, uh, the only answer you can give is water, H2O. The miracle at Cana involved a change of substance. If asked what was in the jars before the miracle, the answer would have been water. The answer after the miracle would have been wine. A change in substance is normally accompanied by a change of accidents. When uh, grapes have been turned into wine, they lose the accidents or appearances of grapes and take on those of wine. It's only in the Eucharist that a substance changes while its accidents remain unchanged. If we ask what a priest holds in his hands before pronouncing the words of consecration, we must answer bread. Once he has pronounced those words, we must answer the body of Christ. The fact that what he holds in his hands after the consecration retains all the outward accidents or appearances of bread, must not detract from our belief that it is in reality our Lord himself, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Uh, some Catholics are, are somewhat puzzled by the fact that we receive our Lord's divinity in Holy Communion. Uh, th uh, this is a slightly complicated uh, doctrine if you haven't heard it before. But the true body and blood of Christ are made present by the power of the words of consecration. That's known as ex verborum just as they are in heaven at this moment. So they have to be accompanied by all that is really united with his true body at the moment the words are pronounced. That is to say, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. And all these are present under either species. This is known as the doctrine of concomitance. 
Our Lord's divinity is united with his, with his humanity in virtue of what is known as the hypostatic union. That's the permanent union of his human nature with the divine nature of God the Son, which of course is one person with two natures. Two consequences follow from the doctrine of concomitance. The first is that the separate consecration of the bread and wine symbolize the death of our Lord, but that there is no real separation of his body and blood in the Mass. The second and practical consequence is that because the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially present under either species, the faithful who communicate only under the appearances of bread truly receive the whole Christ, no less than the priest who also partakes of the chalice. I have already mentioned the, the, the principle lex orandi, lex credendi, that the law of prayer is the law of belief. Uh, the church requires us to adore the blessed sacrament, uh, and we are forbidden under pain of sin to adore anyone but God. So if the blessed sacrament wasn't actually God, then the church couldn't order us to adore uh, our Lord present in the blessed sacrament. Uh, this was made very clear by Pius XII in his encyclical, The, the Mystical Body of Christ. This is what he, this is what he wrote. Uh, the sacred councils teach that it is the church's tradition right from the beginning to worship with the same adoration the word incarnate as well as his own flesh and St. Augustine asserts that no one eats that flesh without first adoring it while he adds that not only do we not commit a sin by adoring it but that we do sin by not adoring it it is on this doctrinal basis that the cult of adoring the Eucharist was founded and gradually developed as something distinct from the sacrifice of the Mass. Uh, the reservation, this is still uh, Pius XII speaking, uh, the reservation of the sacred species for the sick and those in danger of death introduced the praiseworthy custom of adoring the Blessed Sacrament, which is reserved in our churches. This practice of adoration is, in fact, based on strong and solid reasons. For the Eucharist is at once a sacrifice and a sacrament, but it differs from the other sacraments in this, that it not only produces grace, but contains in a permanent manner the author of grace himself. When, therefore, the Church bids us adore Christ, hidden behind the Eucharistic veils, and pray to him for spiritual favours of which we ever stand in need, she professes her gratitude to him, and she enjoys the intimacy of his friendship. That's the end of the quote. Keeping to this theme uh, uh, of lex orandi, lex credendi, uh, our duty to adore Christ present in the Eucharist has been given frequent and solemn liturgical expression. In 1264, Pope Urban IV instituted the Feast of Corpus Christi, and this was to no little extent a liturgical affirmation of true Catholic belief in opposition to the heresy of Berengarius. A natural development of the institution of this feast was the practice of processions of the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, there's no mention, actually, of a procession in the Bull of Urban IV instituting the, the feast, but... but one of the earliest records of a procession of the Blessed Sacrament is in the records of the Guild Merchants of Ipswich in 1325. And they speak of a tabernaculum in which the Most Holy Sacrament was carried in procession. In 1447, Pope Nicholas V introduced the solemn procession at Rome on the Feast of Corpus Christi. A further development of the cultus of the Blessed Sacrament was its exposition on the altar for adoration for considerable periods of time. This culminated in the great exposition called the Carantore, or 40 Hours, 
And that was begun in Milan in, in 1534, which incidentally it was the same year in which Henry VIII proclaimed himself head of the church in England, and he had St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher executed in uh, 1534. Uh, the final development in the cultus of, of, of the Blessed Sacrament, was, of course, was the institution of benediction, in which the people are actually blessed with the host. It can be traced back to the beginning of the 16th century, and it's specifically mentioned in the instructions of St. Charles Borromeo, who lived from 13, 1538 to 1584, but it must have been in use much earlier. Now, that's quite an important thing to remember uh, in the history of the Eucharist and other aspects of Catholic theology. Uh, I, I mentioned to you St. Thomas Aquinas explaining why only the hands of a priest should touch the host. But that doesn't mean that that was a new idea introduced then by St. Thomas Aquinas. He was uh, commenting on a tradition which, which is, as far as he knew, went back to time immemorial. Apart from Luther, all the Protestant reformers denied any real objective presence of Christ in the Eucharist. They condemned, they actually condemned uh, adoration of the Blessed Sacrament as idolatry, which from their standpoint was logical, because they believed there was no substantial conversion, and all that was being carried was a piece of bread, and, and so they called it idolatry or bread worship. They were condemned specifically by the Council of Trent, uh, this was referring actually to, to the 39 articles, well, it was the, uh, I think the 42 articles originally of the Church of England, and Trent is paraphrasing what these articles said. If anyone, so this is the anathema of Trent. Uh, if anyone saith that in the Holy Sacrament of the Eucharist, Christ, the only begotten Son of God, is not to be adored with the worship, and the outward worship also of Latria, and is consequently neither to be venerated with a special festive solemnity, nor to be solemnly borne in procession according to the laudable and universal right and custom of Holy Church, or not to be set up publicly before the people to be adored, and that the adorers thereof are idolaters, let him be anathema. The Blessed Sacrament is God's greatest gift to us in this life. We do not actually need to understand how our Lord is present, but, but to believe that he's present, to believe what the church requires us to believe. Uh, and, and what is this precisely? It's been made very clear for us by Father Francis Clark, S.J., who's almost certainly the greatest authority on Eucharistic theology in the English-speaking world during the second half of this century. If any of you can get his book, Eucharistic Sacrifice and the Reformation, you can do so. Actually, I do, I do know of a bookseller in Australia who's, who's got some copies. Father Clark states that we must believe exactly what has been believed by, by the believing, praying, and teaching church right throughout the ages. So, so this is what Father Clark says we must believe. We must believe that, namely, this which was bread and on which words of divine power have been pronounced, this which we take and eat, this which is the mysterious centre of the church's worship, is now Jesus Christ present in the very flesh in which he was born of the Virgin Mary, in which he died upon the cross, in which he is now victoriously glorified. This is Christ, not anything less. Our basis for accepting the dogma of transubstantiation, which as I said we don't need to understand, is faith in the teaching of our Lord, who could change water into wine and feed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. 
In his sublime hymn, Adoro Te Devoto, St. Thomas Aquinas has expressed perfectly uh, this faith. Uh, I'll just read you a translation of the first three verses, uh, the, tra- the translations by Dr. Adrian Fortescue. Humbly I adore thee, hidden Godhead, veiled truly under these figures. All my heart I give to thee. Yes. All my heart I give to thee, for it fails in contemplating thee. Sight, touch, and taste tell me nothing of thy presence. Yet safely I trust what I hear. I believe whatever the Son of God has said, nothing can be more true than the word of truth itself. On the cross thy Godhead was hidden. Here is hidden thy manhood too. Yet I believe and confess both, praying as prayed the good thief. Uh, this is just a little bit of my personal opinion now, it's not the teaching of the church, but, but, but I believe that it's only fitting that the liturgical rite which makes present the same body that the wise men adored in the manger should be the most dignified, reverent rite of mass that it's possible for men to devise. And I think that our greatest privilege here at the Dietrich von Hildebrand Institute every year is that of being present each day at the mass that von Hildebrand himself loved so much. Father Adrian Fortescue assures us that the Mass we'll have today, the Tridentine Mass, is the most venerable rite in the whole of Christendom. And Father Faber believed it to be the most beautiful thing this side of heaven. It's also our very, very great privilege to have this most beautiful and most venerable of all rites celebrated every day with such profound reverence by Father Berea. Von Hildebrand laid very, very great stress on the awesome nature of the rite of Mass Unfortunately, even with something as awesome as the Mass, we can start beginning to take it for granted. Uh, when Father Berea elevates the host today, giving us, as he does, which I appreciate very greatly, ample time to adore it, let us contemplate the body of Christ with fear and trembling, considering how he even dared to be here in, in his presence, and to remember those words of St. Augustine, which Pius XII quoted, the mystical body of, uh, of, uh, of Christ, No one eats that flesh without first adoring it. Humbly I adore thee, hidden Godhead, veiled truly under these figures. Well, thank you very much.